thank you for your word. Thank you for this sermon. Um, it was um, shocking, astonishing. It caused them to have amazement as, as they listened to you. And these were your, your son's own people, the Jews. And they listened to a message that takes about 20 minutes to read. And um, it blew them away. It wasn't what was normal in the day. It wasn't what 400 years of silence did that uh, created Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots and Essenes and other groups that had, they had um, enhanced their religion, but they had not come closer to you. And so here's Jesus explaining things, and we need that explanation, Father. We need your help uh, to take this to heart, to not be bored, uh, to recognize that it, the meat and potatoes need to be chewed a little bit. Uh, that we need to take time before the message and after the message to work on this and process it and um, search it uh, to find out what's true. So thank you uh, for the opportunity. I don't want to take this for granted. Uh, may it be a, a day that changes people, each of us, to, to, um, to be more pleasing to you in all that we do, Father. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are nearing the end. We will call this the eighth beatitude for the sake of clarification. But it also transitions away from that. It gives you two blesseds in the context here, kind of a double blessed. Uh, and there's reasons for that because this is maybe the hardest. Maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but it, in, humanly speaking, we think this is the hardest one to accept. Once you've gone through this series and we've listed them for you as we went through the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 3, you become a spiritual beggar. This is where people uh, admit their, their bankruptcy in Jesus Christ spiritually. They have nothing to offer. They're not coming to God to cut a deal and say, hey, I'm really good. You want to bring me into to your system, and you're going to get a lot from me, and I'm going to give you a lot, and kind of a 50-50. That doesn't work. It doesn't work with Jesus. It doesn't work in marriage. Marriage is 100-0. If you enter it any other way, you learn really quickly that it doesn't work. Love doesn't wait for the other person to do the right thing. It doesn't. Instead, or in spite of even sometimes. So here these spiritual beggars come together in verse 3. They become repentant mourners in verse 4. I'm not going to go through all these like we have been. And then surrendered servants in verse 5. The idea of what it means to be meek is to be submissive to God. Unbelievers are not submissive to God. I don't know if you've figured that out yet. All right, They don't want to do things God's way. And all of them have different flavors of their favorite sin. You know, you may get a lollipop and I like red or orange or blue grape or whatever it may be. But this is how unbelievers are and they just kind of want to dabble in it, but they don't want it to be, um, have a master over them, a new master that's going to tell them what to do. But you become a surrendered servant. And then from that step in verse 6, you become a hungry learner where you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The seventh verse tells us about generous caregivers. This is a characteristic that comes out of us as he's changing us and making us more like Jesus Christ, who was willing to lay down his life for others. Once we're at that stage, hungry learners kick in. They can't have enough. And then with verse 9, they become good messengers, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. They're sharing the gospel. They're, they're doing what Jesus did to them. They're looking for people who are drowning. Remember we talked about the one, two, three. They become um, individuals who are, are on a mission to find people that are admitting that they're spiritually bankrupt and looking for someone to help them to come out of that position. And then we get to the eighth one here. Happy are the persecuted. Happy are the harassed, as John MacArthur puts it. Again, he's using the word blessed. He's talking about those that are enriched. And you won't like to tie that in with verse 10. They're spiritually prosperous. They're counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. You see, if you move through those steps, the first seven, and you get to this one, and you actually start rescuing people, you are going to be persecuted. How many of you know what persecution's like? This is a, I'm not asking for a show of hands, just for you to respond from the inside. I read something this week of a preacher who got into a, a black neighborhood, and he was white. And he was sharing the gospel and trying to minister to people who were black. And he literally got picked up by the police as soon as it was done, taken to the police station, harassed, threatened to be beaten if he didn't get out of town. All he was doing was sharing the gospel with black people. They didn't want him doing that. What is it going to take for us to be persecuted? I just gave you the list. 
I know you're in quiet mode these days. We're trying to get, Dennis gave me a little bit last week, starting to speak up. But it requires us to act like Jesus. And just like Jesus was treated by his own even, let alone the world, what the Romans did to him, we will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we're not being persecuted, what's missing? We're not desiring to do what? To be righteous. That's what it comes down to. You go, oh, no, we're in America. Have you been following the news at all? I mean, I, I know a lot of you, uh, ostriches get a bad name because they say you stick your head in the sand. They never do that. I don't know where that ever came from. That'd be pretty dumb of an ostrich. But if, but if you were trying to hide out, you go, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. And so along with that, what else are you doing? I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell. I don't want to stir up, I don't want to stir up. I don't want to cause problems. So you hide out. Christians don't do that. You go through this list and you see what they're like. They're becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. They're becoming just like him. Did he keep his mouth shut? Did his disciples keep their mouth shut? In studying this for the week, I came across a list of, and they don't know for sure uh, on the disciples how they died, but they think Peter was crucified upside down, and, and John may have had his head lopped off. And I mean, Paul had his head lopped off. And John, we know, lived a long time. He's probably the oldest one on the island of Patmos. They all died for their faith. They weren't quiet. They all had different personalities. You go back in there and look at them. Some of them, you don't know anything about them except for their name. They never opened up their mouths, and Peter did enough of that. Some of us are like Peter where we're talking all the time. And the other ones just sit there and keep their mouths shut and stay out of trouble. But not Peter, not James and John, not Judas. There were some that spoke up at the same time. Persecution is part of the Christian life. To be persecuted, this is a perfect passive. I could translate this about the blessed are those who have been persecuted. I could translate it, blessed are those who have allowed themselves to be persecuted. What does he mean by that? How do you allow yourself to be persecuted? What do you do? I'm going to force you to talk. You're going to have to talk. Or my message is going to get really long with a lot of pauses. You go out and speak up about Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection. That's all you have to talk about. You go, oh, I don't have answers to everything. You, if you want, take a little notebook, write down the questions you can't answer, and, and bring them to me. I'll help you. But I'm not going back with you to talk to the person you are. All of us don't have answers to questions. I do that on a regular basis. Hey, that's a good question. Never saw that before. Let me, let me look that up. What other excuses do we give for not sharing our faith? They might get mad. They might get... They don't care. Oh, you don't have interest. Okay. I don't care. Well, I go back to this list. Okay, which one of those is of the Beatitudes that says, uh, I don't care? No, I don't think that's in there. There's a lot of people that don't care because they don't know Jesus. That he's never done anything for them. They've never been changed from the inside. And obviously, nothing's going to happen. How well did Peter do when he got persecuted? Early on, denied Christ once, twice, three times, and then that rooster crowed. Just like Jesus told him. But how do you know that, Jesus, that Peter really was saved? What did he do right after that? He went out and wept bitterly. He knew better. Denying Christ isn't a law. You can't lose your salvation. It's a free gift. It's eternal. It's impossible to lose it. But you can come along with enough pressure. So what you have to do is you have to be in a habit. If all of a sudden our country gets bombarded with laws, which they're trying to put in, this new marriage law, which they're going to justify everything, any kind of marriage with anybody. And as soon as a preacher preaches about that, I'm going to be guilty of a hate crime. And I can be arrested. I keep telling you, it isn't far away in America. We're at a crossroads. Uh, the next election, it may have some impact, but it's not going to undo what's going on. America is turned away from God, and it's running in the opposite direction. And people don't want to turn around. They love their sin. 
So here you got this idea of this persecution. Blessed are those who have allowed themselves to be persecuted. I've opened my mouth to people that I think are going to hurt me. I've become a missionary and gone somewhere where people don't want to know. I was reading about a lot of stories this week about missionaries that went out. One guy that the natives were um, filling him with arrows one at a time. And he took the first arrow that went in from one of their priests in this tribe that were headhunters. They were going to eat them when they were done. So they weren't poison arrows. But the arrow went in. He pulled it out. He broke it in half, threw it down. Next priest shot him in the back. He reached back, pulled the arrow out, broke it, threw it on the ground. How many arrows do you think he went through? 30, 40, 50, 60? You think he eventually died? Yeah. But they started saying things. The natives started saying things. These, these men are immortal. They're unable to be killed. They'd try to share the gospel with them. They were trying to reach out to them. Ultimately, they, they both died, well-known missionaries, but they both died and individuals today have come to Christ and there's a church there. Are you willing to go to a tribe that's going to kill you to share the gospel? I'm not willing to go across the street to my neighbor. Maybe even with a cup of sugar or a bowl of cherries or something that I'm actually being nice to them because I'm afraid they're going to attack. I've seen people, we used to go door to door, it doesn't work well in the pine. We've had people sick their dogs on us. We had a woman keep her husband from trying to get to us. And that was years ago. This is normal today. And that's why we hesitate. We just hold back. I don't want to be persecuted. The word means to put to flight. It's the idea of being pursued with an evil intent. When they they say sick them to the little dog, not the little dog, the pretty good sized dog, and you're getting the impression the guy goes leave or my dog is going to attack you. Get off my property. You kind of get the message that I'm being persecuted, I'm being pursued with evil intent. They want to hurt me. So they follow after, they chase down, they drive away. They did this to many of the disciples in the New Testament. Paul on a regular basis. How am I doing today? Blessed are those who have allowed themselves to be persecuted because they've submitted to Jesus Christ. They're submitting to suffer for him. And yet he says here, blessed are these people. Happy, prosperous, favored by God, pleasing to God. That's what he's describing them as. That doesn't compute in my little brain. If I die, and I'm the seed that gets planted in the ground, and from that seed come a number of people that come to Christ. Just like when Jesus died and the centurion said, behold, he was a son of the gods. He recognized something different about him. Why? Because he wasn't cursing them. He wasn't threatening them. He wasn't lashing out in in the pain that you're in in the the crucifixion and trying to to damage them. He loved them, and he asked God for his father to forgive them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, here's where it narrows down. If I get persecuted for shooting the neighbor's dog, eh, doesn't count. I get persecuted for tearing down his fence because he built it on my property. I've had that two or three times in Lapine. Guy had his chicken coop or his uh, rabbit hutch on the property, even had it here on the church property, but I had it on another piece as well. And, and all the droppings, and they cut down a couple trees, and, and they were throwing all their trash over there. And then I came along and I showed them where the fence line was. And they went, oops. They weren't doing it in a mean way. But how you treat them and how you respond. Uh, as you slaughter a couple of their rabbits in front of them and say, this is this will cost, this will pay it enough. No, I'm just kidding. You, you still love them and you, you let things go. You're not trying to make a major case out of it. But it's on the account of righteousness. This is what he's after. Prosec- or persecution brought on because of righteousness. What is righteousness? It's doing what is right before God. Whatever God tells you is right is righteousness. That's how Christ is going to come back. That's how the world is going to be dominated by righteousness when he returns. It's what is fair and equitable in dealing with men. You can describe righteousness as justice, goodness, all that God requires a man to be. Not because you've done something wrong. Look at 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 explains a couple things. Starting with verse 12. 1 Peter is right after James and right before 2 Peter. That's amazing. You want to look these things up with your own eyeballs. 
The scriptures will not stick. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the, the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. This is Peter. Peter the denier. Peter the one who said, I had no, I don't know the man. And he says, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There it is again. Peter learned something. Because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, a righteous person, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will become or be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God. This is what he's concerned about. And then he says two more, quotes from Proverbs 11, if, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer, according to the will of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You hear stories of people being burned to the stake, and not lashing out at those around them. Very common practice in the dark ages, as they call it. Catholics burned many people who would not submit to the Catholic Church. Thinking they were non-Christians and it was the other way around. They didn't react. They said words that would help people to come to know Christ from it. Is that how you respond when you're in pain? Is that how you respond when somebody mistreats you? He's going to break this down in a couple different ways. There's, there's a promise. He says, theirs is the kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom. And it's the idea because the reason that they will be in the kingdom is because it's theirs through Jesus Christ. Present tense. Already possessed. Presently, they're enjoying the kingdom of God. It was theirs at salvation. Blessed are. And he gave this whole long list of what you're supposed to recognize. This kingdom is a region governed by God. It's the realm of his authority, his dominion. Where is that kingdom today? It's in the hearts of those who have trusted him. Where would it be when Christ returns? He will take over the earth. He will deal with the subjects on the planet earth that did not obey him. And he will pour out his wrath and his indignation. Remember in the beginning when God created man? He said he created man in his own image. Everybody thinks that has something to do with we look like God, we talk like God, uh, we think like God. It has nothing to do with any of that. If you do a little study of the word image in scripture, you find out that all the image means is a representation. All people have been put on planet earth representing God. It doesn't mean just the ones that are saved. It means the ones that are also unsaved. They're his representatives. They will all give an account to God one day when judgment comes. What did you do as my representative? I gave you dominion. I gave you rule over the planet. What did you do with that? The environmentalists think it's, it's a matter of rescuing the planet while you're killing off the people. They got it upside down. Or elevating animals over people. They're worshiping Mother Earth. They're not worshiping God. They think that they are the gods, that they can do something to control planet Earth. They haven't figured it out or they don't want to admit they, they can't. They haven't come to their spiritual bankruptcy where they acknowledge, I can't do anything. This planet is too big. Good, unbelieving scientists will admit to you, you can have no impact whatsoever on the planet. Because carbon dioxide is not the problem. It's groaning under a curse of Romans 8. It's waiting for the redemption of our bodies as believers. When God will restore everything on the planet, it's the curse of sin that has affected the planet. Unbelievers cannot fix it by trying to deal with global warming, or what they don't call it that anymore, with climate change. So it's broader and they can include all kinds of things in there. They're puffed up in their own minds. They're deceived. 
and they're sidetracked from what really matters. You are a representative of God's. You are to be carrying out his will. He's the king. He's the owner. He's the ruler of this world. So how are we doing? Do I still pick up papers when I find them on the ground? Walking down the street? Yep. Do we try to put out fires when we find them going because they're going to consume uh, trees? Yep. Are we good stewards of what we have? Yep. But that's not the focus of my life. The focus of my life is serving God, and the highest priority of God's is people, that I love people after I love God. So the question comes down here as we're looking at all of this, what is the realm of his authority? What is the dominion? How do I get somebody to understand the gospel and then to enter into that kingdom, that authority, that that realm of God's? Because it sets them free. They think it's going to entrap them, and in reality, it's the other way around. Satan convinces people that God's the liar, and Satan is the one telling the truth. And it isn't true at all. And I don't know how people haven't figured that out. Even as young people, when they're trying to do foolish things with their bodies, whether it's drugs or it may be um, smoking marijuana, cigarettes, it, it may be drinking alcohol. And I watched a lot of teenagers around me get drunk and a number of them die. You'd think they'd figure it out at that point. Sophomore science, what we called it, when they taught you and they actually took you out in the school, now you've got to do it outside, I guess, to learn driver's ed. They showed you movies of consequences of what happens when you drive too fast. I still remember the one of the guy hitting hitting something so solid that he went through the windshield and flew in the air like 100 feet, land on the ground, and was in agony. I always think of that picture when I think of hell. He had grabbed two handfuls of grass, and he was just sitting there with his teeth clenched and just in pain. And so as a sophomore in high school, I kind of went, oh, don't drive too fast. I learned from that, but I was already a believer. I wasn't trying to prove something, and I wasn't a follower. I didn't go after everybody around me. We have a lot of teenagers around us today. They just want to be accepted. They will give in to peer pressure if the peers will love them the way they are. They dress like each other. I was driving into Bend the other day, and I saw, I think I counted at least 30 of the same car. Some kind of sports car. I didn't even recognize it because it's a newer one. They all had the same car. That's independence. The only difference was some had convertibles, and they were all painted different colors. Some had different types of tires on them as I kind of watched these and looked by. But I'm going, you guys are all copycats. And they had to be adults. I don't think very many of them were probably 15, 16-year-olds just got their permit. They couldn't afford the car. They don't ever break out of this routine. To, to acknowledge that you're drowning and need help, you're all on your own. To ask Jesus Christ to save you, you have to acknowledge that I am lost. But too many look around and say, well, I'm in the same boat they're all in, so hope God grades on a curve. I just have to be a little bit better than the rest of these. That's not what he's talking about. So this, this um, problem comes in, and he promises a blessing to those, I think, it leans toward the past, so I put it that way. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heaven. And you can bring in, and I will in a moment, some of the prophets, some of the different individuals that were severely persecuted. And as I read through Jeremiah, they treated him like a dog. And yet he's a prophet of Israel, and some of his prophecies had already come true. They didn't want him. And they didn't want Yahweh, their God, telling them what to do. And so there was a great struggle. Look how he switches over in verse 11. Puts it into the present tense, and he says, Blessed are you. This is a change from all of the other Beatitudes. It was general to those and them. Now he says, Blessed are you in the present tense when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. And it's not just because you have a Jesus shirt on. It's got to go beyond that. An unbeliever can wear a Jesus shirt. They've got to see him in our lives. Again, he's referring to his listeners. The audience here, as you go back and remember when we started this, it's the disciples, and it may only be a few of them, they're not all mentioned. It's great multitudes that are following. We know the Pharisees, Sadducees are around at different times. So he's talking about these individuals, and he said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you. 
Blessed are you, you're spiritually prosperous, even under persecution. You're privileged, you're favored, you're approved by God when men do three things, and I broke them down in this persecution. And you want to note, it's on account of me. It's because of Christ, for his sake, as his representatives. The first one is this hating, when men cast insults. This idea of casting insults means to ridicule, to mock. It's verbal reproach and reviling. It's being disrespectful. Look at John 15. John chapter 15. What, is, what are we in the middle of in John 15? I'm going to try to get you guys to read the Bible until the day I die. Upper room discourse. It's a sermon that he teaches. It carries the second half of the Gospel of John. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. He's in the upper room. And then the last few days of his life are 18 through how many chapters in John? 21. Those are the last few days or the last week or so of his life. It's kind of interesting how John's message is so different and yet pointing back to the same Christ. In chapter 15, verse 18, we read these words. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's talking to them, uh, those disciples specifically that's in the upper room, and he's talking about choosing them to serve, not for salvation. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for you, to you, for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have, uh, have known sin. Or not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. You ever seen that in a movie, in, in um, somebody else's life? Okay, we're not even close, close enough to watch that. America is going to get a rude awakening. As soon as the laws get strong enough, and they're changing in California, which means guess what's going to happen in Oregon? They're coming. They're going after Christian schools. Now they're even in California, they're going after charter schools because they don't control them. And they want to shut them down. They don't care about the excellence that's coming out of those schools. Homeschoolers are way above the national average as far as what they learn. That's not what they're interested in. It's control and indoctrination. That's what they're after. And ultimately it's because that's what Satan wants. If you will not submit, he will try to break you. If you still want to submit, he would try to get rid of you. So you move to the second phase here. From this hate, hatred that gets sent out, whenever men cast insults, it can be a variety of times, to this harassing. And it goes on to say there, when men persecute you. This has put you to flight. We talked about this a little bit earlier. They drive you away. This is a physical pursuit. They chase after you. They openly attack you. It is shocking to me to see in the news recently how many Jews are fleeing Russia. My first thought was, are there still Jews in Russia? How did they even survive up there? I'm finding Jews on the, the news stations that I watch that are more conservative actually speaking up more. I'm finding a number of commentators. There used to be a lot of Catholics on Fox. The one I've turned over to, I'm finding there are more and more Jews. And one guy came out boldly and said, both of my parents were Jews, all four of my grandparents were Jews, I am fully Jewish. And I'd watched him for a year, year and a half, had no idea. But he had a rabbi on, he was talking, I don't think he's saved, but he was conservative and he's looking at these issues, talking about what do we do. God is reaching people with the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicts everybody coming into the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Where is that found? John 16. 
Verses 8 to 11, conviction. Everyone in Romans 2 has a conscience that God works on. As we talked about, they try to put a little piece of tape over the red light on the dashboard so they don't know that the engine oil is low. They don't want to know. They try to block out the conscience. They try to justify it. They try to make excuses for it. But it's there, and you can't get away from it unless you really harden it. And when you harden it too severely, you become a, what's a person that has no emotional feelings? They can kill anybody and not think twice about it. Sociopath. That's what you make yourself into. We are not um, stagnant in, in, our, in our lives. You're either heading, moving toward God or you're moving away from Him. And it's hard to believe that some of these people can do some of the things they do and care less about it. Totally selfish. So here's this persecution. When they find out what's going on, you bump over just a little bit to Matthew 5.44 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What am I supposed to do with those persecutors? Love them, pray for them. Are they on, the, on your list? Remember we talked about that, people that you don't get along well, maybe you know that actually hate you for what you stand for. Are those people on your prayer list? Because that's what we're supposed to do. And the which? The biting, the biting list? Yeah, yeah, going back to that one. And so as you look at this, look at Matthew 10, 23. We're going a little further outside of the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew 10, 23, Jesus again speaking said, But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Talking to the Jews here. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This is talking about nearing the end of time. They're ultimately going to flee out into the wilderness. But they're running away. What did Paul have to do over and over and over? Leave the city. What did he do sometimes when they wanted him to leave? And they stoned him and he got up and went back in the city. The finally disciples had to talk him into, let us, let us let you down from the window and let you get out of here. Paul was not afraid to die. Paul loved Jesus Christ. You watch his testimony three times in the book of Acts. 9, 22, 26, something like that. And he is talking about what God had done. And he came and recognized his spiritual bankruptcy when God met him on the road to Damascus. He mourned over his sin. You see him saying that later. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm least of all the apostles. Greatest of sinners. Paul knew where he came from. And so it caused him to become a man in love with Jesus Christ who laid down his life. The third form here of persecution is harming. When you go down a little bit further, when men say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Now you've moved to a different level. Remember what they did with Jesus Christ before his crucifixion? What did they need? What did the Jews need? Witnesses. To speak against him. What did the witnesses claim? He said he would... Okay, he would tear down this temple, which is absolutely ridiculous. The one they're looking at took 46 years to build. And so here's a man. I mean, you look at this, and the, court, the judge would go, that's ridiculous. Get, get out of my court. But they said he was going to tear down the temple. And that was sacrilegious. What else did they claim? Okay. But they had two witnesses. What else were they saying about him? Okay, he was king. We only, this is the Jews talking. We only have one king. What? That's coming out of the mouth of a Jew? They hated the Romans. They didn't submit to Caesar as king, but they used it against Jesus. Because all they were being is lawyers in front of a judge. Whatever we got to say to get our way. And so they tried to um, take him down. This was a, the idea of harming is to say evil. It's to speak for the purpose of injuring somebody else. Doing damage. It's verbal attacks. What, what works best that for us today? When you're really mad and you're in the heat of battle with arguing with somebody, of course it couldn't be your spouse, but somebody that you're close to, and you're in the heat of battle and you have to reach for a, a weapon. Oh, oh, no, it won't be a holy stick. It's an unholy stick. But what do you reach for? What do you use? You're in a corner. You've you got to fight back. What's that? Okay, you look for weaknesses and you even go beyond that. You lie. 
You make up stuff. And you gossip about them. You bring up your mother-in-law, don't you? I did. I never, not too much. And rarely ever in a derogatory way. My mother-in-law was too short and too nice. I brought up other things. But as you're interacting with this, you're coming at it because you want to hurt them. They, they hurt you. They said something, oh, oh, man, stab me right in the heart. Well, I'm going to stab you right back. That's what this is trying to describe. What had Jesus done to them? How had he hurt them? He's what? He made them feel guilty because they were guilty. Yeah, their cushy spot from the leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, he made them really uncomfortable. But he was trying to undo the system, and he was basically telling all of Israel that what they're teaching you is all wrong. And he's going to do it in the sermon. You heard that it was said, now let me tell you what it meant, really meant, not what the Pharisees taught you. You've heard what it was said, and let me straighten this out for you. Let's go back to the real intent of what God meant back then. We're not changing anything. The Pharisees and Sadducees have changed it. They've taken it way out of line to make themselves look good. But the whole thing is, this um, verbal attack is the word poneros. It's the idea, if you have cancer, you'd rather have a benign cancer rather than a malignant cancer. This word would be the word you would use to say, my cancer is poneros. My cancer is malignant. These are malignant words. They're destructive. They're harmful. You can't leave them there. They'll do damage. And then he throws in the idea they're doing it falsely deceitfully. It's a flat-out lie. It's undeserved. And what is harder for us to take than somebody lying about us to a group of other people? I've told you before, when I got kicked out of a church once upon a time, best thing God ever, well, third, fourth best thing God ever did in my life. My wife's up there much higher. My salvation's up there. <laughs> but as I, as I went out thinking, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible, it took me a couple years to try to figure out some stuff and kind of get resettled. But what I, what I struggled the most with was to find out that people had been lying about me. Going around Lapine, which they're probably doing again now, but going around Lapine, Jack couldn't make it in retirement, so he had to go back go back to work so they could pay him again. Whatever, I don't know what they're saying. But, but going around Lapine and telling them things like adultery, I laughed when I heard that one. Well, they don't just kick pastors out of churches for nothing. So they start coming up with ideas. And it was from people that didn't really like me. Only a couple of them really hated me. Yeah. But as I struggle with that, I, I, I laughed at the adultery because I've told you before, my wife told me if I ever committed adultery, she'd kill me. And I told the one person that said it to me, I go, here I am. I'm still alive. And they weren't really laughing or smiling too much. They didn't think it was funny. But another lady that came up to me, I've told you before, and said, oh, I know you aren't guilty of all those things. And I went, Excuse me? All those things they've been passing around town about you that you did wrong, I know you're not guilty. And walked into Ray's supermarket and the last thing I saw of her. I wanted so bad to ask her and pull out a piece of paper. Okay, what is it? What do I need to undo? God undid it. That lady watched me for 10 years after I got kicked out. But I had people persecuting me. Is that severe? No. Did it keep, they were trying to drive me out of town. In fact, one of them told me that. You, pastors that get forced out of a church shouldn't stay in the same town. I'm trying to leave. I tried for two years. God said, no. I asked him again, no. I asked him again, no. No, 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 no. So as you're wrestling with this thing, you've all had that. You've all had people say things about you. Some things are true. Those hurt. Some things are out and out lies. They hurt a lot more. And you can't undo them. It's like ripping the pillow with the feathers in it and walking from here to your house with shaking the pillow and the feathers come out. And then when you get to your house, say, okay, now you need to go back and pick up all those feathers. You can't do it. You can't undo the gossip that went from person to person to person to person. Who knows what was said? Who knows how much it grew as it went out? How does he tell you to respond to those people? You're blessed, first off. And you can rejoice is what he's going to get down to here. I have many other verses, but I don't have any more time. So when you get to the future, he tells you that you're blessed, for those who have been persecuted, 
Blessed are you when men cast in souls and persecute and say all kinds of evil falsely on account of me. That's the, the criteria that it goes to. Then he tells them with a command. He hadn't given any commands up to this point. But he says in verse 12, rejoice. It's a present tense. Be rejoicing. Be glad. Be full of joy. Be having extreme delight. What? Because of people persecuting me? Saying nasty things and some amount out lies? If it's on account of Christ, rejoice. Why do you think some of these martyrs could go to the cross or go to, and many of them did, or go to the stake to be burned or go to a native jungle and rejoice even in the process of them being killed? Because they had their eyes on Jesus. See, I'd given myself to him. I am no longer own myself. He's bought me with a great price and I'm to glorify him with my body. So it's all his. I don't make a big deal out of it anymore. I try to talk about it as little as possible. But one of these days I'm going to die. So are you. I may die in the pulpit. I have symptoms that are getting worse at times, and I'm kind of looking and trying to figure out what's going on. Cancer does that to you. Treatments of cancer do it faster. But as you go through that system, I kind of go, how do I apologize to my kids? If I've made promises or commitments to do stuff, and all of a sudden I'm not there. It's not my job. You have the same question to ask you. How are you going to apologize to the people around you that are depending on you when you die? Huh, I never should have gotten that car wreck and gone through the windshield and hit the telephone pole. I'm sorry. Sorry. Is that what you do? No. That, that, that's God's timing. That's how, what, what God's working on. And yet we, we focus on things that are out of our control when God's telling us here to focus on things that are in your control. Rejoice! Let that attitude dominate our lives. I don't always rejoice. I stand up here sometimes feeling um, like a bad example some days. I'm not God. Some people think the pastor is. I'm not. When he gets in here, he didn't just say rejoice. He likes to double up. He says, and be glad. And the second word, it's a different Greek word. It's in the middle voice. Be glad yourselves. Celebrate. Praise. This jubilant exultation. That might go outside of my categories of how I act, but, but rejoice exceedingly, extreme joy. Literally, one writer put it, to skip and jump with happy excitement. Over what? What's the context? Persecution. Yes! Yes! I got fired today! They hate me because I love Jesus. They told me I couldn't read my Bible on my, on my lunch break. So I didn't want to cause hassle, so I went out in my car. Well, my boss came out, walked next to my car, and saw me reading my Bible in my car on my lunch break. Reprimanded me. So the next time, I went across the street on a sunny day in the summer, because there's a park there, and I'm sitting on the park bench. My boss comes over and says, you're fired. You're making our company look bad. We don't promote the Bible, and we don't promote Jesus Christ. You tell them whatever you want. Try to sue me. Try to get through this court system because I fired you for being a Christian. I'm going to lie. I'll cover it up. They'll never know. I've already documented a bunch of things that we're really going to use to put on your whatever they call it when you get fired. But the guy's basically saying to your face, I hate you. No, you don't hate me. You hate Jesus. Because anything I did wrong at work and where I messed up, I needed to go back and make it right. I needed to apologize. I needed them to take a couple hours off my time card or whatever way I do it. I was trying to be a good worker in every way I could. But if they come out and say, you are fired, what do I expect to see out of you? What, what's the gladness going to look like? You're on the park bench, then where are you? You're jumping in the park. Yes! Yes! Wait till the guy's out of he- hearing so you don't, you don't, he doesn't think you're rubbing it in. Then you, then you become homeless, sleep on the park bench, and go around getting handouts. No, you don't know. It's what happened to me when I got pushed out of the church. I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know what was coming the next week. I got one week of severance pay. Three children, 
God was in control. When I got back, took a break. When I got back, I was making more money doing a job that ultimately allowed me to serve people in another way, construction, than the church ever paid me. Far more money. A lot more freedom. And this church happened because of some of that. So as you're looking at it, you, you have to recognize that God's in control. That's where the focus is. It isn't on how you're feeling or that you're going to have to sleep on the park bench. It's that Jesus Christ is in charge of my life. I've given my life to him. He promised to never leave me or forsake me. I'm in good shape, and so I can rejoice in that. And I've got a reaction out of somebody. I want to get him one way or the other. Either you hate me or you love me. Either you hate Jesus Christ or you love Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing. You're parting people. Don't let them sit on the fence. Lovingly, gently ask them, what do you you believe? Who do you think Jesus Christ was? What do you think about the Bible? If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Then you got the atheist who comes along and says, I don't believe there is a God. So I start dealing with creation. Well, where do you think everything came from? And I find ways to get into their life and cause them to recognize the truth of what's really happening. Is that what we're doing? Or am I fearful and I'm hiding out because of what somebody might think about me? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is in the heaven. It's literally in the heavens. And it is great. It is abundant. This is what he's trying to bring up there. My wages, my recompense, my compensation is abundant, great in magnitude and quantity. And then he throws in there, for so they persecuted the prophets. When you go back and you look at Matthew 23, and this is the last one I'm going to bring up, even though I have more. I don't know what time I started again, so I have no idea how long I've been going, but that's okay. I'm I'm just going to wrap up. When you get to Matthew chapter 23, if I said it wrong, 23 verse 29. Jesus is speaking here. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, he was making friends and enemies. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. You just connected yourselves with those people. Have you broken away from them? Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, making friends again. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Guilty. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones everybody looked up to. They were the ones who stood on the corner to pray in long robes and long prayers. Oh, look at me. I am magnanimous. I am worthy of your respect. Don't worship me, but come close. Yeah, I'm funny looking, aren't I, buddy? (laughs) Even the six-month-old, how old is he now? Five months old. He's listening, though. Paying attention and not falling asleep. I'm impressed. But he says, your reward in the heavens is great, for so they persecuted the prophets. You're in the same line. You'll receive the same benefits, the same rewards as the prophets. You guys ought to be jumping up and down right now and saying, pick me, pick me. I want to die for Jesus. Go get him. The precious thing of that is, out of the 10, 50, 100 that reject you, you're going to see someone come to Christ. And that individual is going to be discipled by you and is going to thank you throughout eternity for being faithful to God. That's part of your reward. You get the privilege. It's not God from heaven. Hello, earthlings. You bad sinners. Here's how you can get out of the problem. He didn't send angels. 
No sky riding. He sent us to be the spokesman for God. We've got to get rid of the fear, the physical fear, and get excited about the spiritual privilege we have in Jesus Christ. That's where the Beatitudes started. He already shocked his audience. They're all sitting there going, what is this guy saying? Blessed are those who are persecuted? You're crazy. But it's only 20 minutes, so they say, listen. Let's go into the world today and make a difference. If you do not know Jesus Christ, and some may be watching, it's really, really simple. It's so simple that anybody in this room can share it. Christ died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead, victorious over the grave. He paid our sin debt, and God accepted that sin debt. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he paid for your sins and rose victorious over the grave. Believe on him. My way of explaining that is get on his back and let him carry you across from the sinful side to the side of God. You don't have to do anything. One, two, three. Admit you're drowning. God will take it from there. Love to help you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As the Beatitudes wrap up and we go into what it means to be salt and light next week in some longer passages, may we not forget the foundation that your son laid. May we not forget who we are and the changes he's made in us if we are believers in Christ. May we get out there and make a difference in our world. I ask you to prod us. Get a little extra kick this week so that we either have to admit that we refuse to obey or we actually step up and carry out your wishes. We thank you for the reminder. We thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ and for suffering for his name's sake. May we live in such a way that the world only sees Jesus in us. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a closing song. And again, make it a prayer. I'm trying to reach out. And I'll sing from the back. <laughs>